Hello and welcome to episode number seven of the Seven Figure Millennials podcast, where it is my job to help uncover the winning strategies that will help you to prioritize your happiness, health, and relationships while making your biggest entrepreneurial dreams a reality. And today's guest is Andre Norman. Andre is a good friend of mine, and actually, he used to rob cocaine dealers for a living. I am not joking. Add that on top of convictions of armed robbery, armed home invasion, armed carjacking, and two attempted murder charges, and Andre was faced with a 100-year prison sentence. But while he was in solitary confinement, he had a crazy epiphany, and after a lot of hard work, he was actually released having just served 14 years with a crazy, ambitious goal to become a Harvard Fellow. And not only did Andre achieve that goal, but he's also lectured on multiple TEDx stages, as well as Harvard University and London Business School. And today, he's on a mission to fix America's criminal justice system. And in this episode, I want you to listen for three things. There's so much that we dive into, but three of my favorite parts. In the very beginning, we talked about why Andre believes quitting trumpet at age 14 actually led to him ending up in prison. We talked about lessons from robbing cocaine dealers that you can use to help grow your business. And we also dive into some crazy, hilarious stories. Andre's an incredible guy, and you'll see he's an incredible storyteller as well. And some of the stories that we dive into is how to order a hamburger in prison, how exactly you climb the ranks as a prisoner, and at one point, how Andre was actually leading the gang activities and generating over $3 million per month while in prison, and how today Andre is leveraging everything that he learned from the inside to actually change the criminal justice system. And I'm so grateful to say that I know Andre personally. He has an incredible heart and he's been known for literally dropping everything and flying out to somewhere just to have a conversation with somebody who's going through a tough time that that is considering committing suicide. And I've seen him do that. And so uh, I'm so excited for you to listen into this conversation. It was absolutely incredible. So let's cue the theme song and enjoy my conversation with Andre Norman. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Figure Millennials Podcast. All right, Mr. Andre Norman, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here. My pleasure. It's always great to join you. <laughs> awesome. So I figured we'd start in an interesting spot. So I got our mutual friend, Dr. Benjamin Hardy's book here, Personality Isn't Permanent. And I'm on page 65, and I'm just going to read the first paragraph here because Mr. Andre Norman's featured on here. So it says, After spending 14 years in prison, Andre Norman went to Harvard and dedicated his life to helping other people. Although Andre's transformation has been amazing and unexpected, the reason he went to prison in the first place might be even more surprising. Andre went to prison because he quit playing the trumpet at age 14. So I figured we could start right there. What did quitting the trumpet have to do with you going to prison and all the other stuff that you were up to? I like the, if you, if you're listening right now, he just held up a a picture of a little trumpet player. (laughs) Yes. I'm favorite trumpet player in my heart. Um, when I was in the sixth grade, I started playing the trumpet and I played all throughout middle school every day, all day. I was always on punishment. So I had plenty of time to play at home and practice. (laughs) And when I got to eighth grade, I was ready to go to the district high school where all my older brothers and sisters are gone and the neighborhood are gone. And the English, and the, excuse me, the music teacher, Miss Ellis, came to me and she said, Andre, you can't go to the school. You have to go to a 
uh, magnet school. I said, why well, can't I go to district school? She said, you have a gift. And your gift takes you where it takes you, and it's not to the district school. She signed me up. She called the um, music teacher at the magnet school, and she sent me. So high school, I started at the magnet school. I go down in the morning. I get into the band room. It's a room full of nerds. <laughs> There's <just> nerds <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> coolest guy from my school. I'm selling drugs. I'm carrying guns. I'm that guy. I'm in a room full of nerds. Pocket protectors. I'm saying thick glasses. I'm like, what is this? <laughs> and But I play music. So I joined. I'm in the band every morning with my nerd friends. And then in the afternoon, I hung out with the guys I sold weed with. We chased girls. We got fights. We did that type of stuff. Then one day, my afternoon friend said to me, Dre, what's that box you're carrying? Said, oh, it's my trumpet. We had this big discourse about it was stupid, it was ugly, it wasn't cool, black folks shouldn't play it, it's a waste of time. And they finally hit me with the, either us or the trumpet. Mm. We can't hang with you if that's what you're going to do because it's not cool. I've been alone my whole life. I hated being alone. I still hate being alone. It was a pain point for me. It was either give up my friends or give up my trumpet. So I gave up my trumpet. And I tell people, growing up poor, it's horrible. But people have grown up poor and made it. Growing up without a dad sucked, but people have grown up without a dad and made it. Trying to grow up without a dream is just impossible. Mm-hmm. Nobody grows up without a dream. I don't care where you're from or who you know. So when I gave up my dream, I gave up all, all guidance, direction, and purpose. So I now I had a purposeless life, which just left me in the street. So once I quit the trumpet, it was all bets off. And one day I found myself in prison. Wow. So what was that day like when you just decided to just, did you like literally throw the trumpet in the trash? Like, what was that? Oh, was it like, I took it, it home. I took it home. I put it on a dresser and just, just got dusty and I wasn't home anymore. I stopped practicing and just, I started doing other stuff. It's like your favorite pair of sneakers or your old baseball mitt used to have. You just kind of put it down and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> and as you know, it's like four years later, you're standing in front of a judge and he's reading off sentences, 7 to 10, 7 to 10, 9 to 10, 20. You don't make the connection between quitting band and going to prison. You're like, I'm going to prison because I robbed people. I'm going to prison because I did bad things. I never stopped to say, well, why was I doing bad things? Because I wasn't in band class. I wasn't in band rehearsal. I wasn't at recitals. I didn't make the connection at the moment. I didn't make it for years. I was like, no, I did bad stuff. So it's something that would send bad people. I never asked myself, why was I out doing bad stuff? Why did I have the time to do bad stuff? Hmm. And oftentimes it's small decisions that lead to bigger decisions and we don't make the connect the connection. Yeah. So that day you ditch the trumpet, you go with your your friends that are the the cool friends that you wanted to hang out with and be associated with. So what what was that what ended up I mean, if you don't mind me asking just point blank, what got you into prison? What was it that you you ended up doing and Oh, I robbed drug dealers for a living. So they had the money. People say, why do you rob drug dealers? That's dangerous. No, it's not. Think about what a drug dealer actually does. He gets drugs. He finds the most weakest, frail, addicted person he can. He hands him drugs and hands him money. There's nothing tough about that (laughs) at all. So most in the movies, drug dealers are tough or they have these drug gangs. But in reality, they're just regular people. And they sell drugs and people buy drugs. Their clientele is not tough. So it doesn't force them to become tough. So I used to rob the drug dealers because they had the money. Awesome. <laughs> Makes sense that you would you would go with the people that had the money. And was there a specific kind of, like, what was your approach? What was the, is there a specific kind of drug dealer you would try to go after? Oh, sure. I targeted um, white suburban drug dealers. 
I'm dead serious. You go to the suburbs, you find a kid in the park who's buying and selling weed or coke. Then it scales back to like there's two or three guys sitting in the house someplace who should be or might be in college. And they do this for fun because they're getting high and they just turn into a little mini business and turn into a big business. And they, they don't have any pit bulls. They don't have any guns. They don't have any radar. They have none of that stuff. It's three teenage or low, I mean, young white kids sitting in an apartment or house in the suburbs thinking nothing. So when I kick the door open and I come in, they're like, oh, my God, what is this? And it, they're the most cooperative. Friendly, easy going guys you've ever wanted to do business with. They start telling you stuff you didn't ask. Like, hey, just give them the stuff under the dresser. We don't want to die. Because for them, it's not life or death. Right. For a black guy or a Spanish guy, a poor kid in the neighborhood who got his drugs on, on consignment or loan, he's responsible for that money. These guys probably pay for their drugs outright out of, out of Christmas money. So they care less. They're just trying to live through it. They have something to live for. Mm. And they're like, whatever. Then the back end of that is if you rob a black drug dealer in the next town over from you, he's not taking that loss. He's going right. to come you, and he's going to go to the different neighborhoods and try to figure out who's who, who's the stick up kids and will it down. And then he's going to, whoever he thinks that person is, he's going to attack. Picture three white suburban kids coming into the inner city, driving around trying to find a random black guy who robbed them for drugs. It's never going to happen. <laughs> so... It was the safest thing until it wasn't. That makes so. So there's. I want to. I want to. I don't. I'm. I'm going to avoid going in chronological order because I just have a question I want to ask here. So sure. like, I'm sure there's lots of things that you learned from those days and from being in prison that are still 100 percent applicable to actually okay. growing a business. So like, what are some of the lessons that you learned from those days and from be, being in prison that that you help people with in their entrepreneurial lives today? Well, I got arrested not because I robbed drug dealers. I took two drug sellers with me to rob drug dealers one time. They didn't know what the hell they were doing. So the lesson is just because they're your friends and they kind of understand the business doesn't mean they can do the business. Mm. Selling drugs and robbing drug dealers is two different things. They were so unprepared and made so many mistakes that it, it just went all bad. So one, that's one. Two, and my team, I used to recruit people. I recruited people to join my gang and my team, whatever you want to call it. And they carry guns and they went out here and we fought and we, we went toe-to-toe every day. So recruiting people wasn't really, really important. You have to recruit the right people, train them up, earn their loyalty. This is what I do at London Business School. Corporate retention based on gang loyalty. In corporations, people quit every day for $10,000 in a parking spot mm-hmm. and go join the other team. In gang life, you can't quit and join the other team. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you can't do it. They'll kill you, we'll kill you. It just doesn't work. So how do you get somebody, bring them to the point of loyalty where they will die for you, do a thousand years for you, never turn their back on you or join the other team, no matter what the offer. So I teach um, corporate retention based on gang loyalty. I teach recruitment based on gang strategy. I'm saying I definitely like don't hire the wrong people. That's just universal. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I, I want to, we could maybe dive into some more of that stuff later, but I kind of wanted to go back into some, maybe we can learn about some of the other stuff that happened that you then applied to your entrepreneurial career. So you end up in prison. There's a day you're in front of a judge and he's sentencing you for, for all this stuff. You walk into the prison on the first day. What's that first day like in prison? I'm scared to death. Shook, as we say, no, I'm scared to death. I heard about the rapes. I heard about the murders, heard about the stabbings, heard about the gangs, heard about the gods. 
It's just awful. Everything you've ever heard or seen on TV or in a movie is flooding your mind. And you're like, oh my God, it's about to happen to me. So my first day, I mean, like they call it the new main unit, where they, before you go out in the population, they take you to the hospital. You first come in, they check you out, make sure you're okay. Yeah, my plan was, I'm going to beat up the first guy that comes near me. Mm. I'm just going to beat him no pulp to let people know that Andre's a fighter. There might be some guys with us that won't fight, but I ain't one of them. So when I get to the unit, I'm ready to fight somebody. And it turns out I know half the unit. It was like all my friends from the dummy class, all my <laughs> friends who quit band, quit football, quit track, quit leadership. All the quitters throughout my life had all ended up in prison. And they were there like, they were kind of like waiting for me. Like, hey, Dre, what took you so long? We knew you were coming. <laughs> because they, they knew me and I knew them. And they're like, hey, Dre's coming here. There's no way Dre's not coming. So they were kind of waiting on me. And then my first day, the fear went away when I knew so many people. And it was like, hey, come on, let's go play basketball. Then they taught me the rules. But that was, but my first, first day was all about, am I going to survive this? Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to be able to make this. So you're going through all the fear and that. You come up with all these wonderful plans and come to find out you don't need them. So the, the plan was that you didn't know, you, you were picturing it in your head that you just had to prove yourself. You had to go beat someone else. You show up and there's a whole bunch of people that you already know. So you, like, how did you begin to establish yourself then? Because I know you, you, you rose the rank, in the rankings really quickly as, as a prisoner. So, you know, what was that plan like and how did you end up doing that? Thank Mike Tyson, who came out of, out of the um, amateur ranks in the pros. Mike Tyson's first fight, he wasn't a world champ. There was a world champ. There was two or three of them. And there was a lot of top contenders. Mike Tyson was just a nobody. And he came in at the bottom like everybody else. Muhammad Ali came in at the bottom. George Foreman at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, Floyd Mayweather at the bottom. Everybody starts at zero and zero. Then you just got to fight people who are better than you and bigger than you, and you fight your way to the point where they deem you a champion. And today, like, hey, that guy, so he finally beat somebody of stature. And it's the same thing in prison. When you come in, you're zero-zero. Then it's all about who did you fight? Or did he fight a bum? Did he fight the guy while he was hurt? Did he fight the guy who was... So it's all that stuff plays into your um, fictitious ranking. <laughs> and then you rise up based on how, much, how many fights you've won and who you've beaten. In a type of scenario, sometimes you might fight a guard. Sometimes you might fight two or three guys. Sometimes it's situational. I mean, so it's not just fighting. It's you got caught in a situation. Did you tell? Did you give up? Did you run? There was a beat. I mean, so it's all the, all the scenarios that you're involved in, you get like rated. You get like a rating. Like, okay, well, he did okay on that. Did okay. <laughs> fantasy. Do you do fantasy football or fantasy for, for game members? Prison. Know something? <laughs> I might create the first fantasy prison. <laughs> Okay, so what are so what are the main like things that are on the scorecard then? So you have fights, you have I'm assuming some level of like control that you have in the game. Yeah, so fight, like, what are, fights are definitely on the list. Okay, um, stabbing people is on the list, and those are separate from that's completely separate from a fight. Why is that separate from a fight? Um, a lot of anybody can punch you. It takes a whole other mindset to run a knife into your throat. To stand in front of somebody and push a knife into their chest is different than just punch them in the face. We've all had fist fights in middle school. We've all had fist fights in elementary school. We've all never stabbed anybody prior to prison, most likely. So that's like a whole nother mindset that you have to get yourself to to physically run a knife into somebody's body. Mm. Okay, so so, got somebody from across the street. You can't do that in prison, right? Okay, so so beating someone up, stabbing someone, 
then no is above is above beating someone else up what what yeah. gets you what are the the other points that you can um, earn? making money knowing how to generate and make money so are you good at making money so there's drug trades there's extortion there's wine um there are staff that need to be turned out or flipping and doing illegal things do you have the ability to convey this convince somebody manipulate them into bringing drugs in do you have the ability to manipulate somebody into allowing stuff to happen that give you stuff out of the hospital unit or, or somebody gives you stuff out of the kitchen you see what level of manipulation if you're a good manipulator that'll earn you status hmm. so when you okay this is just an ignorant question but so when you say you're good at making money so you're it's literally you're 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 not talking figuratively like you're actually making money in prison so you have to figure out how to work with the outside world to bring stuff in right so okay simple math two thousand people in prison and one building one prison, 2,000. If 50% of them are drug addicts, that's 1,000. It's, it's a, a high conversion. $50. So if I can sell every addict, which is 50% of the population, which is an extremely low number, one bag of heroin, that's $50,000 a day, three fifty dollars a week, $1.4 million a month in heroin. Wow. Now we're talking about cocaine sales. Now we're talking about weed sales. Now we're talking about perks and pill sales. Now we're talking about wine. Now we're talking about gambling. Now we're talking about prostitution. Now we're talking about extortion. Now, there's about, in a prison with 2,000 people, easily, easily, $3 million being made monthly on the market. That's easy all day. So knowing how to navigate and create ways to make money is important. Wow. Okay. So, so I mean, when you were building this empire inside a prison, then what were you at your peak? Like how much were you moving in, in a month? So, I mean, we never do numbers, but we were doing numbers. You were, you were, you had your own little accounting. <laughs> we never talked numbers, but we were doing numbers. When I first came in, I want to be clear. I wasn't the boss. I was just a worker. I was right. an earner as the Italians would say. Right. I earned and I worked and I was a soldier. So I did not come in a boss. When I came in, the guys that I was with were bosses, and I was just a soldier. And because I won fights, and because I handled business that they gave me, and because I carried through on things, I got entrusted with more and entrusted with more. Then what happens is the guys above you fall off, whether they get shipped to another prison, they go to solitary confinement, mm. or they might lose a, a fight and lose their status, and it passes on to the next guy. So as it passes on, like one day LeBron James is going to retire. Then Kevin Durant will be the best in the world. But right. maybe not because he tweaked his ankle. So maybe it's not Kevin Durant. It's the grief freak. And one day the grief freak is going to retire. Who's going who's gonna to get the mantle of best NBA player then? You know what I'm saying? So right now everything's Tom Brady, Tom Brady, Tom Brady. He retires in two years. Four years from now, nobody was seen Tom Brady play. Right. All these kids in high school are seeing the end of Tom Brady. So they won't even know him six years from now. He'll just be a, a Hall of Famer, some old guy. Yeah, but the, so if the torch passes if you wanted to or not. Got it. Okay, so I have an interesting question that I I pulled up from my research here. So so you're learning how to extort people. You're getting good at making money. How do you get a hamburger in prison? How do you get a hamburger in prison? Well, <laughs> well me personally, right? By that time, I was a boss. By the time I had grew up in the system, I put in a lot of work, as we say, hurt a lot of people. I got kicked out of Massachusetts. After 10 months of being in the prison system in Massachusetts, they deemed me too violent and too incorrigible. They called the federal government and said, we want to transfer this man to you. They do a prison exchange. So I, they take me from Massachusetts. They ship me to Pennsylvania. 
I went to Lewisburg where Al Capone did his time. Wow. I go from out, I go from there, I go to Oklahoma, I go to Tennessee, I go to Alabama, I go to Mississippi, I go all over the world. They send me on a nine-state tour. Everywhere I got off the bus, I caused havoc. They send me back to Massachusetts. I get back. I put my team together, and we're doing our thing. So I'm sitting in my cell. I'm a boss. And I woke up. I was bored one day. I was like, I'm hungry. I'm, I like to eat. So I'm like, I'm, so I get up. I walk down to the desk, walk past the CEO, walk down the hallway, walk through like three checkpoints, get to the control center, walk through that checkpoint. I go into the kitchen. How are you? How are you just walking through there, letting you through because you're a boss and you basically just have. I am. I am the boss at this point. Okay. So when I get to the kitchen, you walk. It's like walking to any industrial kitchen. There's a bunch of people running around with white jackets on, cleaning up and cooking and making stuff. So when I walk in, there's the guys on the grill. There's the guys over here in the dry area. There's guys cleaning up. There's guys prepping. I say, yo, to the grill guys, yo, make me a hamburger, make me some fries. They're like, yes, sir, (laughs) no problem. Because they know what time it is. So I'm waiting like, and then while I'm waiting for my hamburger, this guy comes out and starts yelling at me. He's like, yo, what are you doing in my kitchen? You're not dressed properly. What are you doing? He starts screaming at me. I'm like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> He's like, I'm the kitchen director and I work at this place and that place. And I got 30,000 culinary degrees and I want to go. He's like, who are you? I said, I'm the regulator. He says, what do you regulate? I said, if you go home or not. And he looked at me, right? He's like, make that make sense. I said, well, I could kill you right now and you'll be dead. They'll come down here, they'll get me and they'll take me to solitary confinement. I'll spend the next 10 years in solitary for killing you. Your wife won't see you. Your kids won't see you. Your mother won't see you. You'll be dead. But 10 years from now, they're going to let me out of solitary. You'll still be dead. I'm going to walk through the same five locked doors I walked through to get here today. Now I come back in 10 years. I'm going to walk through that same door. And I'm going to tell them the same thing. Make me a hamburger. So I'm not a tough guy or a bad guy. I mean, I'm a patient guy. So there's two choices. Really. <laughs> 10 years patient. <laughs> do I get the hamburger today or do I get it in 10 years? It's your, it's your choice. I'm not mad either way you choose. He looked at me like, <laughs> he's talking about killing me. And nobody's trying to help me. He looked around his guards in the kitchen, his staff, and nobody's blinking. They looked at him like he just smacked Mike Tyson, like, dude, you about to take that ass weapon all by yourself. He walks over to the grill and tells the grill man, make him two. <laughs> and he went in his office shaking. And every time I came through that kitchen or I came through the line, he was super polite because they didn't explain to him, like they don't explain to most people, prisoners decide if you go home, not the other way around. No God decides when a prisoner gets out. Prisoners decide if they go home or not. Because like I said, I'm going to kill you and just take the punishment. So, I mean, with the way you said it, like, I'll just take the punishment. So at that point, you just, in your mind, you were just going to be in prison for forever. I had committed to being in prison forever. I mean, that was a, I, that was a goal. I, like, you were just like, I'm going to be here. I'm here. I, I got this thing. I grew up alone. I'm not really connected to family or friends. So as long as I'm with me, I'm fine. You can't separate me from me, then you can't hurt me. You can put me in a dungeon. You can put me in solitary. You can ship me around the country. You can torture me. You can't separate me from me. The only thing they've ever done in my 14 years that scared me is they shot me up with this thing called Thurizing. I had a ride on the airplane. It was my second ride on the airplane. And they had a court order that they could shoot me with Thurizing. It's like a tranquilizer. Hmm. Knocked me straight out. 
I'm scared of Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> Terrified. I had no control over my body, my mind. And I'm drooling. I'm. I had. It's like one on the floor of the cuckoo's nest. It's like that heavy duty tranquilizer medication where you just you become a zombie. So you were like semi-conscious, but like you couldn't control anything, and you're Nothing. just. No, it's a tranquilizer. It's like, whoa, I was, that scared me. That's the only thing they did in 14 years that scared me when they shot me on Thursday. That stuff's not to be played with. Wow. Okay, so, so you're your boss. You're able to get a hamburger whenever you want. You, you have control of everyone. You're committed to being in prison for the rest of your life. Nothing can scare you except for Thursday. So I'm sure you get asked this question all the time, but like what, what was the light bulb moment? Like, what made things change? At the time, I'm the number three boss. And I always wanted to be number one, of course. So I had the opportunity, finally, to become number one. A situation came up where if I responded and handled my business, I'd become number one. And think about Dorothy and her little team in, in The Wizard of Oz. You come into The Wizard, the tree falls, and the building falls, you're in the Oz. You're going to make this path to, be, to go meet the wizard. So for six years, I'm on route to meet the wizard because I want to be the wizard. But to be the wizard, you got to meet the wizard. And I'm fighting in states and countries and I'm underground. I'm being tortured. You name it. I'm doing it with a smile because it's the end of this. I finally got to the wizard. I got to the big room and I pulled a curtain back. And it's all bullshit. It was fake. The Wizard of Oz is fake. It's just some little dude playing a role. I'm like, this is what I came here for. I've given up my entire life for this. And I was just distraught, crushed. It was my, I call it my Wizard of Oz moment. And this is the thing about the Wizard of Oz. Everybody in Oz believes the Wizard's real. And nobody's trying to prove it different. Everybody in the kingdom, right there in his little threshold, believed the Wizard was real. Nobody's trying to disprove him. So when I pulled the curtain back, it was like, what are you doing, buddy? It's like, uh, yeah. It was all you can do to Matrix 3 when Neo finally got to the place. And the guy told him, he said, oh, you think you're the first one. Yeah. We've been here five times already. <laughs> we know how this ends. You can save the girl or save the world. We know what you're going to choose. See you later. Bye. So it was one of those moments. And I was like, just crushed. And I realized something. I was the king of nowhere. The best way I can describe it. And I didn't want to. Once I saw it was fake. I couldn't put my heart into it. I had put my whole heart. I could have, I'd have done anything to be the wizard and to be in that space. Once I saw it was fake, that's it. Over. So I had to come up with another plan. I had my epiphany moment as someone said, and I said, okay, I don't want to be here. I need to be someplace else. So I started doing assessments. And I realized that everybody who went home came back. So free didn't work. Free was not the option I wanted. You said, hey, Drake, you want to be free? And I thought about it. I said, nope, free doesn't work. 70 to 80% of people go home, come back, and they get free. I said, I want to be successful. Successful people don't come here. So I said, I'll go home, I'll be successful, I'll never come back. I said, where do successful people come from? College. So I picked a school called Harvard University. So I'm going to go home, go to Harvard, I'm going to be successful. The hell with this place. And without going over the top, that's what I did. I went from maximum security prison, illiterate, with a knife in my hand, in a hundred years sentence, I taught myself to read. I taught myself to law. I taught my. I went through anger management. I went through self help groups. I spent eight years, every single day, working on my goal and my plan, until I got out of prison, 
in 2000, in 1999, and I spent another 15 years till I got my fellowship. So you're talking about 24 years I committed to that goal and I got it. It wasn't three months, 24 years almost. I committed to achieving my Harvard goal and I'm, I became a Harvard fellow against all odds, against all naysayers, against anybody who thought life was real. But again, I go all in on stuff. Either I'm gonna get there, I'm gonna die trying. Most people didn't get to see the wizard, not because they couldn't have, they didn't try. There were so many people right around the wizard who weren't even challenging it. So I challenge, can a black guy from prison with a GED get into Harvard? I challenge, can a non-entrepreneur but a really smart guy get into genius? I challenge, can a outreach worker in Boston work for London Business School and the top clients? And I challenge, can a prison philosopher work at the White House for George W. Bush? I challenge, they're like, how do you win these things, Drake? Because I try. Michael Jordan said, you miss 100% of shots you don't take. So people think, how did you do it? How did you do it? How did you do it? If I had said to you when you were a kid, hey, this is going to be this thing. You can program on your phone. Your car will pull up to your front door, heat seated, heat meet, seats heated, radio on, ready to go, get in. It'll take you where you want to go. You ain't got to touch a thing. They're, we're like a year away from, they have them, self-driving cars that can pull up to your front door, pick you up, take you, drop you off, and come back and get you. That was impossible. It was 0% chance that was real when I was a kid. Elon Musk said he didn't believe in 0%. Steve Jobs didn't believe in 0%. Joe Polish didn't believe in 0%. Arnie Norman doesn't believe in 0%. That's where you put your money because, one, there's no competition. B, it makes you work hard. So if somebody says, hey, Dre, there's 100% chance that you can win if you go here, I'm going the other way. Mm. It's, it's going to be a super long line. It doesn't require effort. That's so powerful. So, so, I mean, I'm just trying to think from your perspective. So you, you see the wizard of Oz, you're realizing this is not what you wanted and you have this moment, but then, you know, you have this goal, but then you walk out and you got all your friends that are in prison and they're like, what's up? What happened to Dre? You're the boss. Like, so like, how did, how did they react to it? And, you know, we, we, I, I opened this by reading from Benjamin Hardy's book, like willpower doesn't work. Your environment's going to win. And you were stuck in like with being the boss. So how do they react to it? How do you do with that? Willpower doesn't work, but a plan does. See, I take willpower to be you saying, I'm going to lose hundred pounds. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. That's willpower. That willpower alone, Ben is right, does not work. Mm. A firm, distinct plan with metrics and action steps can win. I'm saying Elon Musk didn't just say, I want there to be an electric car that does these things. He went and built it. He drafted it out, he reverse engineered it, and then he built it, trial and error. Steve Jobs built it, trial and error. So I said it, but then I built my plan and I did it trial and error. So I came the next day, I told my guys, listen, I'm going home, going to Harvard, and I'm going to be successful. They wanted to laugh at me, but I had a habit of stabbing people. So nobody laughed. <laughs> And they couldn't see that vision. And that's the thing as entrepreneurs and millennials, people won't see your vision. You know why? Because your higher power, your God, or your whoever, your spirit gave you that vision. It didn't give it to them. The worst thing that you can do 
let's take your vision to people who don't have vision and ask them to critique it. Mm. Don't look for validation from people who haven't achieved what you're trying to do. So if I said I was trying to win seven championships, Michael Jordan would be a good guy to talk to because he gets it. If I'm trying to say I want to win seven championships and I want to talk to someone who's never played organized sports, they're not going to get it. So as entrepreneurs, stop going to people who don't even walk this walk and get them to try to validate and understand the concept that's outside of who they are. Don't talk to me about making sausages. I don't do it. Don't talk to me, I'm saying, about a lot of stuff. I don't, I'm the wrong guy to ask about electricity. I get you killed. I will tell you, hey, try the blue eye and the green eye. I don't know. <laughs> but so if you came to me with an a, a idea that involves something that I know nothing about, what kind of advice can I truly give you? So then how did you get access to the people that had won the quote unquote championships? Like if you're, if all you have is the, the people that are in jail, how did you start to have those conversations or did you just, I mean, what, what, what resources, how did you start to get that so you could get out of it? I came up with this, I came up with this concept. If you're on the wrong street, it's going to take you to your destination, no matter how fast or how, much, how slow you are. If you're on the right street, It'll take you to your destination. I'm on a fast. I'll slow you up. Mm. So if you're in Chicago and you're going to highway going west, at some point you're going to reach California. If you go east, at some point you're going to hit New York. You can't go east and hope to hit LA. It's a really long walk. Ships go around China. <laughs> really long so it's doable, but not realistic. So when I said I don't have a blueprint or a format to that extreme, so what do college kids need? High school diploma. I went and got that. I said, now, what else do they need? They need to be orderly and manly. So I went to anger management. What else did they need? Not in jail. I taught myself the law to get out. So I started doing the steps that put me on path so that I can be prepared. There's one thing to have opportunity. It's even better to be prepared. So mm-hmm. I'm saying, I have to, you let me out of jail and I don't have a GED and I've got anger management problems and I'm still carrying knives, I'm not going to be let in. Mm-hmm. Don't say no for them. Do everything that you can do to prepare yourself for the opportunity and trust that it'll come. So I did those things. I got the tangible things that were necessary under my belt. And then I met a mentor. And the mentor taught me, it was an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. You know the story. I met my mentor. And I wasn't looking to go to Jewish services. He wasn't looking to recruit black people. But we crossed paths. And I was in a different mind space. I could see the value of this man. There was a time I wouldn't have saw the value in this old guy with a black suit on. Would have even made no sense to me. Because I was using my own thinking. And I had no destination, so he serves no purpose. Now I have a destination. I have a goal. And he's talking goal-oriented materials. We clicked because we both wanted to go further. Then from there, I started getting mentors with different views. And people started seeing me as a guy who's trying. There's nothing more important than to be seen as a person who's trying. Not crying about it. Oh, I'm in jail. Oh, I mean, oh, I don't have any money. Oh, my parents are addicts. Oh, do what you can do with what you've been given. And then go from there. And that's what I did. And as I did that, I got my, my first mentor, and my second, and my third, and my fourth. Then eventually, I went before the pro board. And I was able to have a conversation with them that led to my release. 
The first month before the Pro Bowl, they told me no. And when they told me, they told me that one in that made my case, they told me to step out in the hallway. I stepped back in and they told me, well, we're not giving you parole. I said, fine. I said, can I ask you a question? They said, sure. I said, why did you say no? And they, they were thrown off. Like, they expected me to hoot and holler and scream and call them all kinds of things. I said, why did you say no? It's important to me. They said, we're not supposed to do this, but we're going to tell you why he said no. And they told me why they said no. We don't see your transformation. We don't understand your transformation. We don't. And they explained to me everything to their reason, no. When I walked out of that room, I knew that day that the next time I went to Fort Pro Board, I was going home. Because I understood their no. I could have just been, man, it sucks, and walked out the room. It was every opportunity is an opportunity to learn. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they denied me my freedom, that's over. I'm not going to stay stuck there. I'm trying to go forward. And I need to understand why they're saying no. So I took myself out of the equation, my feelings, and put the logical hat in. They got information I need that's going to better my company, which is my freedom. So we had that conversation. When I came back, like, the next year, I was spot on. They said, let them go. And I came home. And I've never I've, – I've looked back. I've gone back. But I've <laughs> – I mean, I've gone back to help people. But I – Asking, not being fearful to ask the questions, not getting emotional and bogged down, not taking things personally. They told me, Dre, you can't have your freedom. That's personal. But I didn't take it personal. I said, I'm going to keep this business. I'm going to keep this thing moving forward. And I did. Man, so powerful. There's so many things to unpack there. I mean, specifically, I just kind of want to highlight a few things. The fact that you went through this moment where you met Oz, you set this insane goal to get a degree at Harvard, but then you didn't immediately get bogged down with Harvard. You had it as your goal, but then you set milestone goals. It was like, okay, I just need to get the GED first. And then I need to do this first. So it's like, you didn't get too overwhelmed. You just set these milestone goals. And the other thing that was just so impactful that I just want to highlight too, is the asking for feedback on rejections. I can't tell you how many times in my life that's happened where I've been rejected. And it's like so powerful. Exactly what Andre did is like, why? ask for feedback on why you got rejected because you can leverage that as an opportunity to get better moving forward. So super powerful. Go ahead. Are you married? I just got married. (laughs) When you first met her, that very first day, say, oh, she's cute. I want to get her number or IG, you young folks. (laughs) You didn't think I'm going to marry this woman. You was thinking maybe we go on a couple of dates. She's fun to be around. She's cute. You did not think I'm going to spend the rest of my life with her. And she might not have thought the same thing with you. So your goal was to meet a nice lady. Your goal is not at that moment, family, house, car, boat, plane, kids. So my goal of Harvard, it was there. I didn't know the path. But I just know I need to connect to good people. And you met a nice lady. And you put the work in. You messed up a few times. <laughs> I'm sure she I'm saying, unfollowed you a few times. <laughs> But you put the work in, you didn't let be deterred. Now here you are, a married man in a happy life. Yeah. Very, very good analogy. So I, I wanted to back up to here. So so we talked about your first day in prison. You were scared, you were scared shitless. Yeah. Now, 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 now you have the first what were the first steps like out of prison? Like, I mean, it's gotta be like a whole new I mean, you you spent your whole twenties, your entire twenties completely locked up. Every single day of my twenties was in a cell. So what was, what were that first, what was the first day like when you were free? What happened that day? <laughs> well, the first day I was free, I kept a promise. 
I was running a youth program. They used to bring the kids up in the juvenile detention center so we can talk to them. Kind of like scared straight, but I don't yell at people. They bring the kids up in juvie. We had a group. We would talk to them and explain to them why they want to get out of juvie and do the right thing and not come to jail and not, not graduate to prison. So when I got my parole, the kids knew it. And they said, hey, Dre, they said, all you guys in this program who get parole or get out never come see us. They always say they will come, but they never come. They said, will you mm -hmm. come see us? I said, sure. So I got my parole, left the building, went to the parole office, and I signed in. I left the parole office. I went to that youth program. I gave a talk to those, to those young men. They were happy to see me, and I was happy to see them, and I kept my promise. And I talked to them for like two hours, told them my honor Norman prison to freedom story. And they, they applauded. They said, will you come back tomorrow? I came back the next day. And I came back the next day. I came back the next day. And over the next 30 days, I couldn't tell the same story I already told it. These kids forced me to become a master storyteller. Mm. Because you got 35 kids in juvie who are high energy and they can be out on the rec yard, but they're listening to you. So I had to keep them on edge, keep them laughing, keep them crying, keep them thinking two hours a day. I'm doing two hours a day for 30 days straight with the same kids. I got really good at telling stories, but I kept my promise to go see those kids. And in turn, it turned me into a speaker. And I didn't even know it. Then when wow. I ended up with a job opportunity, I ain't no speaker was a job. When I come from, there's no such thing as motivational speaker. That's <laughs> not a job. Then, so when I found out that speaking was actually a job and that I had the skills and it, to do it, I was like, okay. So I've been speaking for 21 years. So, oh man, I, I really want to dive in here. So like, I want to kind of put a mod, like an equivalent, because this is something that's come up to me so much is, um, before I started the podcast, one of the first things I did is I did a Facebook live every single day and I didn't allow myself to, to, to break the chain of, I allowed myself one skip, but I did a Facebook live every single day and I forced myself to get on even when I felt like I didn't have something to talk about. That's exactly what Andre did. That was his equivalent of a Facebook live every single day is that he got on and he ran out of stories after day one, right? Like he was like, what the heck am I going to talk about now? But he kept showing up, fulfilling on his promise. And because he kept showing up, he found his voice. He got better at telling those stories. So I just wanted to highlight and say that it's absolutely incredible. But I, I want to ask then, so like as a master storyteller, as somebody that's put in all these hours of practice, as somebody that's on stages and speaking all over the place, what are some of the secret sauces that you've concocted over the years for telling master stories and how can we get better at telling better stories? If you want to get better at telling stories, stop talking to yourself in the mirror. One, listening to audio tapes, I'm going to do it for you. Two, writing the best speech ever is meaningless. If you want to learn to tell stories, you got to tell stories. So you got to find a group of people that you can go to. Kids are always the best because they tell you the raw truth right up front. <laughs> That's <laughs> a good idea. He'll, tell, he'll walk out on you. So for me, I go, I went in front of these juveniles and I talked to them for five days. I, I started training people. If I would take you, you have to do five days in a row, two hours a day in front of these same kids. And you come out, tell your prisoner, your, your life to prison story. And we all clap for you. I bring you back the next day, put you in front of the same room. When you can do five days in front of the same audience for two hours a day, you're a storyteller. So you need one audience that you can go to and just go five days in a row. 
You need not five back five Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. They need to go and you come back because if you say something that you said the day before, they're going to know it. If you try to you mess up something, they're going to know it. And you just have to actually tell the story. And you can think of stop thinking of logic models and the, the all these wonderful these clever stuff, right? The anecdotes and the affirmations. Listen, tell your story. This is what I got. My first corporate speech. Deutsche Bank, billions of dollars, a bunch of rich white guys in Europe. I walk into the London Business School. They put me in a room. I'm not sweating, but I'm nervous. And I said to them, because I've never spoke to a corporate audience, I said, what can I say and what can I do to make this speech better for you? They said, just tell us your story and trust that we're smart enough to draw the lines. Don't talk in banking terms. Don't try to make us laugh with bank jokes. We've heard every bank joke known to me. Tell us who you are and we'll figure out the rest. So as a speaker, just be you. Stop trying to conform to every audience you go in front of. Now, there'll be some analogies that you won't use in certain spaces and places. But, I mean, don't be afraid to be you. Like, I got this thing. I don't hike with white people. <laughs> I don't go hiking with white people. It's just not what I do. <laughs> so if you ever ask me to go hiking, I'm going to say, hey, I don't go hiking with white people. <laughs> white, but it's okay. And I, I use that. I might better go hiking with Asian now. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm, I'm half Slovenian and half Chinese, so I don't know if you have a rule for that. We can go, so we maybe... can go, we can go up a walk. We can go walking. All right, we'll go on a walk. <laughs> the next line is, that's just, that's one of my jokes. I don't go hiking with white people. <laughs> Did he just say that? <laughs> it's a black thing. Did he just say that? I mean, so don't be fearful of what people, of cultural issues. You want to be respectful. Don't want to be abusive. But be you. If you're a skateboarder, it should be some. They came to hear you, not you trying to impress them yep. with their stuff. So you're going to hear some prison analogies. You're going to hear some food analogies. You're going to hear some other analogies talking. You hear some black analogies when you talk to Andre. You know why? Because I like food. You know I like traveling, and I'm black. <laughs> I've been to prison, so I'm going to talk what I know. That's super powerful. And it's funny because we uh, interviewed a, another Genius Network member I had on the show, uh, Joel Weldon. And Joel tells this story about boring Bob and how, like, I don't know if you've heard him tell this story, but the story was like, this Bob was the most boring person on the planet and everybody would fall asleep. And Joel didn't change anything but the introduction. And he basically had boring Bob. They, they, he's like, I'm so boring. And he made fun of the fact that he was boring. And it became one of the most, you know, people were standing ovation because boring Bob was boring Bob. He was who he said he was. And he just. Yeah. <laughs> we get mad at sports heroes when they lose in a big game. You know why? You're supposed to be a champion. You're supposed to win. When Kobe went out with 61, man, the whole stadium went crazy. <laughs> that's how you're supposed to go out with 61. That's, that's, that's legendary stuff. So when you can be, embrace you, because people want to celebrate you. They'll want to tear you down later, but <laughs> at least going up the hill, they want to celebrate you. Yeah, man. Okay. So, so you get out, you're, you're, you have this day and you're, you're, you learn to be a master storyteller. So I'm a, did you start your speaking career at the same time that you were still pursuing the Harvard goal? Or were those two separate tracks, or did they kind of work together? I didn't anyways? pursue speaking as a career. I got a job as a gang outreach worker, and I started doing that because it was a job. I needed a job, and the guy I worked for went to Harvard. 
his whole team were from Harvard. So it was like, it, it was like the perfect fit for me. So they hired me to do gang outreach for them, talk to gang members, de-escalate stuff. But what I, I knew I could do that. I've been doing it my whole life, dealing with gang members and helping them de-escalate or escalate. But when I was in the office, what I did, when I noticed something, I saw the lady at the front desk. I didn't know how to answer phones. So I went to her and said, hey, can you teach me how to answer phones? Good afternoon, Genius Network, how may I help you? <laughs> oh, Joe's unavailable right now, I may I get back to you? What is this concerning? Do you have an appointment? I mean, I learned how to answer phones. I did a little notepad, I learned a little notepad. I how to forward stuff, listen to the voicemail. And I sat with Tom, the accountant, accounts payable, accounts receivable, taxable income, you know saying, filing, receipts, all of that. And I sat with the director, Ken Johnson, Andre, the people you hire, the most important people you ever deal with because they represent you and you can't take it back right away. And I, I sat with the grant writer. We did $25 million in grants in four years, learning how to write grants. At the end of a year, I was the best outreach worker and I was efficient at everything else. Wow. I learned six new skill sets. I wasn't great at them, but I was proficient at them. So I'm great at what I do and I'm proficient at everything else. So one year out, not kissing butt or shining shoes, I just spent my lunchtime learning other skill sets. A year out, I was the most valuable person in the building because I could do and cover more ground than everybody else. Yeah. You're just the boss. Everywhere you go, you're the boss. Right. You earn the boss status. You got to earn boss status. Yeah. That's, that's so cool. So, um, let's talk, let's talk. I'd like to talk about actually the time when you actually got to Harvard, right? So it's like, tell, tell me about what that path was like after you're out. So you, you, I'm assuming you started going back to college. What, you know, what was that path like? I got out. I went to community. I signed up for community college like a month and a half after I was out. Hmm. I got the job about five minutes after, five months after I was out. And my boss was at Harvard all the time. So with him, I'd be on campus. Just, just being on the campus was amazing. I'm in meetings yeah. with Henry Louis Gates. I'm in meetings with Cornell West because my boss is there. Yeah. And then one day, it was probably like four months, I'm working for him. He said, hey, Joe, we got to go to this meeting. And he took me to a meeting with him. Henry Louis Gates, the head of Harvard Black Afro-Am, had created a black encyclopedia. And from that encyclopedia, they created an after-school program. And all these little black kids in Chicago were going to the program for like, whatever, how long? Then they stopped going. And they couldn't figure out why. So they tried the Swedish guy. They tried the German guy. They tried the, 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 the Canadian. They tried every expert in the country to help them figure out why these kids stopped coming. So they brought me to the meeting like, hey, Gene has this guy. Bring him. So they brought me out there. It was a crazy meeting. They brought the one black guy in and make me feel comfortable. We come, <laughs> we go into the meeting. And we're talking, and they're telling me the story about the program and the first, second, third session, and the fourth session, all the kids disappeared. So I said, well, what did the kids say? No, 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 we brought in a guy from Germany. And he said this. And he, I said, what did, the, what did the kids say? Well, the guy from Sweden did this testing, and I said, no, no, you, you're missing this. The kids know the reason why they're not coming. You need to ask the kids why they're not coming and fix that. And they finally got it. The bell went off. And like 30 seconds later, like, hey, thanks for coming for dinner. And they ushered us out the door. <laughs> we get outside. We're in Harvard Square. My boss turns to me. He said, hey, Dre. So what's up? He said, give me 200000 I said, 200000 Dude, you ain't got 200000 He said, give me 200000 I said, I ain't got it. He said, that's what you just gave them in information. You just gave them $200,000 of information. They've hired five experts, and they paid them all. 
and you gave me the answer for some food you don't even like. <laughs> I was like, but I was at Harvard. And I now I'm on the campus, I'm on the campus, I'm just there with him. Then you start being in different rooms, you start attending seminars and attending speeches. Then you I'm doing the work. Then it was like, hey, can you come talk about your work? Because my work started getting recognized. And I'm giving seminars and speeches myself on campus. Oh, there's this thing about prison, bring Andre. The first was one, one of my first speeches. Uh, they called me on Saturday morning, my phone rings, they said, hey, the boss can't go to a speech. No problem. He needs you to fill in. No problem. Says at Harvard. I said, no problem. He said, I said, what's to talk about? He said, consumerism. I said, we got a problem. He said, what's the problem? I said, I don't know what that means. <laughs> they literally came over to my house, picked me up, went to the dictionary, and consumerism is how people spend their money. And they read the definition out of the dictionary to me on consumerism. I take one of my guys, we go to Harvard. And there's all these PhDs, 20 books written, and the rest of this. I said, I'm about to get embarrassed. I said, I am about to get thoroughly embarrassed. I just learned the word this morning, and all these people got five books apiece. And I got on the stage, and it was my turn. I just told my truth. I just kept it to what I knew, shut the building down. Everybody else, I didn't know it had prearranged speeches. So I started asking one guy the questions based on reality. And he started reading from his cue cards. And my question wasn't in his cue cards. They know, hey, that's not what he asked you. <laughs> so now I'm just engaging, engaging. My fellowship came in 2014. Michael Brown Jr. killed in Ferguson. The city erupted in riots and protests for almost a year and a half. I they called me to come work the city in the city and help with the riots and the protests. Harvard wanted to be part of that initiative. And they didn't, everybody tried, nobody, nobody succeeded in doing anything in Ferguson. So when I was going, Harvard said, okay, we'll partner with you. Know what partner with you means from Harvard? We'll take credit for all your work. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll give you a little trinket in the meantime. So they gave me a fellowship and they got to attach themselves to my work. So now I got an office at the law school. I got an email and I got a desk and all this wonderful stuff. And I took all the people from Harvard, instead of taking them someplace else, so the mayor, the police chief, the governor, brought them all to Harvard, and we had a symposium at Harvard Law School. And I, 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 I led it and got my fellowship. And then the guy that brought me in, Dr. Ogletree, um, has since become sick. And when he became, and he was like, he's the guy. He was Michelle and Barack's mentor. He's a mentor to any person who's come to that law school in the last 40 years. So when he got sick, it was I mean, I don't know the other people. I came because he was there. So I kind of like drifted away. So I haven't been to Harvard in like two years now. Mm-hmm. I still know people there. Um, my ex-wife has a Harvard degree. My son's on track to go. Um, I do still talk to people periodically. But my day came when they gave me that email, Norman at Norman at edu.harvard. That was the best day ever. I was so, like, excited. So, t- like, was that just like super? Because I mean, okay. So <laughs> let's let's compare this back to that. What's that? Sorry, you cried when they gave me that. E- I can send you a copy. They sent an email out saying, "Hey, we've been notified." Like the, the tech department, we've been notified that Army Norman is starting at HLS, and his his email, his his password. Bang, 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 bang. When I got that thing, man. 
I ain't going to front. I cry because it was 2016 when they sent that to me. It was 1991. I was sitting in a dusty cell block. They told me it would never happen. And I had success. I, I fought like hell to get out of prison. And I fought like hell to be successful. But I never, I never abandoned my goal, my goal or my dream of what I wanted. And when I finally got it, it was just like, cool, I'm at London Business School. Cool, I'm at, I'm at, I'm at the White House. Cool, I'm at all these different places. But my goal had always been my goal. And I didn't let other people's goal become my, my goal. Great, you should be happy you made it to the White House. You should be happy you made it to London Business School. You should be ha- they gave you all these reasons I should be happy. I decided my happiness. And I didn't let other people reframe it for me. So when I got it, at first I wanted to send it to everybody. And I was like, nah, screw everybody. Nobody believed. <laughs> so I used it like twice. And I just, that's it. Yeah, I go back to Gmail. See me on Gmail. <laughs> you don't have the right to use this email. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you let's compare this side by side. So you had the you had the goal of becoming the number one person in the jail. You 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 get that, you you go behind the curtain and realize that it's smoke and mirrors. And now you now you set that goal, you achieve your Harvard goal, you get that email, you're crying. I mean, so that, that what was the difference between those goals for you? I mean, I guess it's kind of obvious what those differences, but like my question really is, is like you achieved that goal, but like for me, at least whenever I achieve a goal, it's kind of like, Oh, what now? You know? So like, what, so what was that? What, I know Andre is always chasing something. So, I mean, did you feel a little empty inside? What was that like when you got oh, that? Afterwards? Uh, no, 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 no. When I got, when you, when you hit the big ones, ain't no empties. When you make 50, as much as you want to be 20, you're going to celebrate 50. Mm-hmm. It's an accomplishment to make it a fifty. We don't let anybody in this fifty plus club now. I'm saying you ain't getting. We don't let anybody in this fifty plus club. So when you hit fifty, I mean, some things are just milestones that you just are happy for. It's like winning an NBA championship. You, you you don't it don't go back. Everything you'd ever done prior, every practice, every hour, every sacrifice, every drill, every time I I went out and did what I did, it all finally came to pass, and there was just if you taken two or three things off the off my list, I would have made it. Don't think I can take these things off because it's small. Every it's you're a sum total of everything, mm-hmm. and sometimes the game's decided by inches. So no, I, I was nobody. I was floored. I was ecstatic. I was there. It was a great moment. But then you have to move on to the next thing. You can't live at your high school graduation forever. <laughs> <laughs> you you got to come up out of it. So to make room, I left the stage not because I wanted to, because if I don't, the next guy can't get his moment. Mm. So I set another goal, not a new goal, another goal, and I wanted to fix the prison systems. So for the last five, six years, not that I haven't been doing this work, I've been going gung-ho on changing the voice and the standards and the views of how people see prisoners or former prisoners because prisoners are dangerous, mean, evil guys that need to be locked away and hide your kids and hide the babies. Oh, but Andre's okay. No, Andre's one one of the bad guys. Andre comes from there and there are a lot, if you think I'm okay, there's no, not everybody, but there's a lot more okay guys in there. You think I'm smart, and no, there's a lot more smart people in there. You think that if given the right opportunity and environment that I can thrive, then there's a lot more people in there. And I just want to show that not only we can come out and thrive, 
but we have to change their environment on the inside. And that's what we're doing now. Yeah. So I think you, you put out a stat before just kind of in passing that there's a 70% recidivism rate. Is that right? So approximately 70% of people that are in jail end up back in jail. So, so tell us a little bit about like what your programs are like and what you're focused on right now and how you're changing that. My program, right? Well, reason 70% of people go to jail is most of them were taught to quit at a young age. They threw away their trumpets. Whatever their trumpet was, they gave up on it. They were taught to quit emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, physically, gift-wise. Somewhere in there, they quit. It wasn't just, hey, I mean, even if you quit on working hard, I got the right, I can go work hard and find my way down. Instant gratification is a form of quitting. So... A lot of people have gone through a lot of trauma. I'm not justifying excusing anything, but we all go through stuff. And we end up there. And when you get to prison, it's not designed to help you be better. The design of prison is not to make a better prisoner. The design of prison is to break you. It's to punish you and to break you. And that's what it does. That's why we have such a high number of people going back, because they they go in broken, they get broken again, they come home broken, and they can't really function. So... My goal is to say, okay, I can't stop you being broken as a kid, but I can help not break you again here and repair you. So you can come home and be like Andre. Come home and be like Michael or Charles or Dominic. You can come home and be like somebody successful because we're coming in saying, we're not here to hurt you or punish you. Being here is punishment enough. We don't have to torture you on top of punish you. So the question we have for society Punishment, yes. Torture, no. Punishment is being confined to a building, which is what the judge said, for a certain term of years. Torture is when I don't make you better and I send you out worse and I got you. That's the torture. You don't have to physically beat somebody to torture them. You just, I'm just going to let you sink and suffer. It's like you watch your friend get drunk at the bar, super drunk, and watch him walk out getting his car. You know what's going to happen. He's going to crash or he's going to get arrested. And if he's super lucky, he might make it home. So you watch your friend drink, 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 drink a gallon of gin and take the keys and walk and stumble out the door. They say, damn, how did he get in an accident? <laughs> so we want to, while you're sitting at this bar called prison and you have this addiction on this bad trait, let's fix it then. So when you go out the door, you're not stumbling. So what is a day like in, in your day like today? So you go into a jail, what is what is like the format and how are you handling this? Because I'm assuming there's some people that, well, hold on. Let me just, ha- let me ask that question. So what's a day like when you, when you a had- A day like is, well, for the for South Carolina Department of Corrections, they had a riot two years ago and seven people were murdered. So they brought us in to actually rectify people dying. So we came in, we took our own housing unit and we went around the state and got the worst gang leaders and gang influencers and put them in one unit. And then we started working with them. And we've helped them. So we have our own housing unit. We go into that housing unit. We do mentoring. We do therapy. We do talks. We do education. do entrepreneurship. We do guest speakers. Everything and above to help them be better. And then we train them, train the trainer model, to go out and teach other prisoners. Mm. So a day would look like I get up. I, I literally live next to the jail for two years. I was one minute drive away from the prison. I get up, drive my minute down the street, <laughs> go inside, and I, we have a town hall meeting in the morning. 
So like 150 guys come out on a unit and we have, I stand at the board and I give them the pep talk for the day. I'm saying, this is why we're doing this. This is, I give them the pep talk for the day. And it's like, we go to classes out at nine to 11. We break for lunch and come back at one from one to three. We do classes again. We break for dinner. And we might just hang out and play video games and cars and talk and walk from like six to 11. That's seven days a week. Or Monday through Friday, weekends, we just hang out. But the key thing is, is you have to be willing to take the better parts of you and pass those on, take the mistakes that you've made, be honest about them, and pass the lessons on. Don't hide the mistakes. Wow. So when, when you're doing that every single day, your, your goal is to reformat the entire prison system. So like what, I mean, we talked about the, the Harvard being the, the big goal that you were chasing. And then there was the GED and everything like that. So reforming man in the entire prison system. So what's the first milestone that you're looking at hitting then? And, and how does it look to, for the next few steps to actually reformat the entire thing? The first mile, prisons are set up differently. There's juvenile justice where everybody's 18 and under state to state. So there's 50 juvenile justice centers, I mean, systems. And there's state prisons, there's 50 of those. And there's county jails. So for every county in America, there's a county jail, almost. And I'm going to bet there's some ungodly amount of counties. So <laughs> some counties partner up and share a jail. But, so there's county jails. And there's the federal prison system. So you have federal, you have state, you have county, then you have juvenile. And it's just like a massive cluster of madness and chaos. So my goal, right now we're working in state prison, trying to create the model so we can take it to the other states. So we're in South Carolina. We've been in South Carolina two years. We've gone from seven dead bodies and 30 wounded to no stabbings, no assaults, no escape attempts, no weapons, and one fist fight. Wow. And two weeks ago, one of our guys saved in, in another unit. A, a guy jumped on a CO and started stabbing him to death. And one of our guys pulled him off. Saved his life. So when we come in, we say to the men, we want you to be held to an expectation bigger than anything you've ever known. We want you to be held to a standard that doesn't even make sense in reality. Like when I said I'm going to Harvard, they said it's crazy. Well, we want you to be better than ever expected. That's crazy. We can't do that. Yes, you can. And one of our guys two weeks ago put his life on the line to save somebody else. This is a man who's never coming home. He saw somebody being murdered. Instead of saying, that man's my enemy because he's a god, or that's not my business, he said, I see a man being murdered. And I'm going to not let that happen. And he went over and he stopped that. Then after he saved the lieutenant, then he had to fight the guy himself because the guy didn't go away. The knife right. didn't go away. Right. The lieutenant went away. So now the guy's trying to kill my guy. So he's fighting him. And people in the unit was trying to give my guy a knife. He's like, hey, fight him back with him. He refused to take a knife. He said, I'm not going to hurt this man. Wow. And he finally wrestled him to the ground and took the knife away from him. But after five, getting stabbed four or five times himself, saved the man's life and put his own life on the line and refused to hurt the man who was trying to kill him. That's Next level. That's what we want to be. And if this man who's doing forever in jail can take those type of leaps and bounds and do that type of turnaround, what can we do? 
What can we do with our businesses? This man put his life on the line for someone that could be deemed his enemy. And he did what was right. Ethics and integrity matter. And where are we at in our businesses? Where we, is it me, 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 me? Or are we going to do the right thing? That's incredible. I So here's a question that I wanted to make sure I asked that I think fits in really well right here. So like, can you help somebody that doesn't want to be helped? I know this is a question that you, you, you love overcoming. So can you help someone that doesn't want to be helped? There's a saying that you can't help someone that doesn't want to be helped. And I say that saying is dead wrong. It is completely wrong. Is this a step before that? It's called getting them ready to want help. And that's what we specialize. We specialize in getting people ready to want help. So can your 15-year-old daughter drive a car? No. That's what they call driver's ed. That's getting her ready to drive a car. I'm saying so driver's ed is the thing you do before you actually get behind the wheel of a car. It's the same thing in life with people who don't want to be helped. There's a step before that. You have to get them to break through their trauma, break through their negative beliefs, break through their, their, their negative talk, and help them walk out of it. So, yes, you can help people who don't want to be helped if you do the step before that, which is getting them ready. So how do you get them ready? You have to listen. My number one superpower in this instance, I want to quote my guy, is listening. I call it reflective listening. I'm going to sit with you, and I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to let you tell me the world through your eyes. I'm going to let you tell me what's wrong and right with the world through your eyes. I'm going to let you tell me why it hurts through your eyes. And then I'm only going to speak to that. I'm not going to tell you, Andre, what Andre did or what Andre didn't do and Andre thinks. I'm going to listen, hey, Brandon, what does it hurt for you? How do you see it? What did you go through? What makes you think this way, see this way, be this way? Then we're going to help correct that. We're not going to say, well, I did it like this, man. I did 14 years. And I turned my life around. You can do it too. Meaningless. It's a complete turn off. Listen to the person's pain, then speak to their pain. If you can help them diminish their pain, their potential will take over by itself. Don't increase the potential, decrease the pain. Mm. So start with the therapy books and the entrepreneurship books. If somebody's in pain, fix the pain. I, re- I mean, I, there was a saying in the Bible where Jesus fed 5,000. He said, before they will listen to me, they can't be listening to their own stomachs. I got to feed them first. I got to feed them, then they'll listen to me. And that's been true in a thousand different scenarios. Joe Pauls will tell you, I'll sell you what you want, but I'm going to give you what you need. Mm-hmm. If, I t- if Joe said, Genius Network is a program and a design to help you heal your inner self, nobody's signing up. Genius Network is going to help you elevate your business and make hundreds of millions of dollars and be world-renowned. They all sign up. And lo and behold, they have personal issues that they need to rectify. Mm. And he addresses those. He addresses both. He's going to help you grow a massive business, but he's going to help you grow a massive heart and a massive piece of peace, sense of peace in your own life. That's... I, so I want to highlight here the, the whole reflective listening process here, just so everybody listening to this right now realizes how valuable this is and where specifically you can apply to it. What Andre was talking about is the equivalent of a sales call. Somebody, somebody, somebody that is not, I mean, I don't want to diminish it to that, but like somebody that is a untrained salesperson, they'll try to, you know, push information down someone's throat and convince them to what they need to be doing. Right. But like, 
The real power is understanding what exactly what Andre said. Tell the world what's wrong from their eyes, what's wrong from their perspective, and speak to that pain. And if you can create a product or service to diminish that pain, like exactly what he said, don't increase the potential, decrease the pains. That was just super powerful. I've heard it said that find out that find out the objections and answer the objections. Don't find out what they like. What they like is not why they're not going to buy it. The objections are why they're not going to buy it. Mm-hmm. Find the objections, fix the objections, and you get a sale. If you listen to the person and you decrease their pain, which is find the objections and, and fix the objections. The yes is already there. What you need to know as a salesperson is why are they saying no? I went to the pro board. I, why were you saying no? Those are the things that propel your business and your space up. Mm-hmm. Knowing, knowing why they clapped is nice. Why are they not clapping? Yeah, that actually, that I, I made a note before to talk about this, but that, that actually was a good segue back into this because I wanted to highlight something that was absolutely incredible that you said, where when you were consulting for the people at Harvard, you said, did you ask the kids why they weren't coming back? And that's another incredibly critical thing is like, I feel like it's so easy to say, oh, let me go hire this consultant. Let me go ask for this feedback. But did you ask for feedback from your users? Because they're the people that, they're the people that you're trying to serve. So right. absolutely, absolutely critical. I want to ask too, so, Reflective listening is your superpower, but like obviously something that's important when it comes to reflective listening is asking better questions. So do you have a way that you ask better questions or how do you think about that? Um, I forget who I got this from. You have to give it to Joe Weldon. Make it about them. I mean, if you're trying to help them, don't tell stories and analogies about yourself. Somebody say, oh man, I'm scared of the dark. I used to be scared of the dark. So now we got something in common. Damn, you scared of the dog? Well, let's 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 go let's go check that closet real quick. Let's affirm and, and make sure that you feel safe. Now I used to be scared of the dog too. It's meaningless. That's about you. Man, listen. I, I don't know if we're gonna have enough money to eat tonight. Oh, you hungry? Yeah, okay, cool. Okay, well, what's the last time you ate? Eight o'clock this morning. Okay, we got a couple of hours on that. I'm saying Mike, Michael Burnoff, future patient. But don't Make the conversation and the questions about you. They want, what's, if I said Brandon, you turn around every time. If I said John, you're like, who's that? You love to, you know the side, you're trained to respond to the name Brandon. Mm-hmm. I don't care. You hear it, you turn. It's your name. You hear that. If you hear the name shouted to somebody that you know, you're going to stop and turn. You're going to look up. Is that, that John? You hear voices recognizable. You stop and you turn. That's people. So your clients, your customers, whoever, talk to them about them. They can, they love, not to say they love to talk about themselves, but they know themselves. They're comfortable with themselves. You say, if they're not comfortable, they're comfortable knowing about who you're talking about. It's not some new information I need to digest. So let their scenario stand. Don't try to one-up them. Don't try to circumvent it. Let their scenario stand and gauge where you are. Don't promise them stuff. Don't guarantee fixes. Hey, man, uh, my sister just died, man, and it sucks. I'm like, yo, bro, damn, okay, man, well, how did she die? You know I'm saying, uh, how are you feeling? You know I'm saying, make it about them. Not like, yeah, my sister died two, two years ago, and this is what I did. Who else is involved? You know I'm saying, is your mom on deck? Who's leading the funeral service? Who's taking care of the funeral services? What are they expecting of you? And when they expect me to give a speech at, at the funeral, then here comes the pain point. You can't fix the sister dying, but now his pain point is not the sister dying. 
Now the pain point and the fear is coming from here to give a presentation. And he's not a speaker. So now you can help him walk through that. And in his mind, he has to do what Tony Robbins does, stand on stage with no notes. Well, you can tell, I've told people, you can carry a note card on stage. They didn't know he could do that. You can stand on stage and hold a note card and read it off the paper. They're like, what do you mean? I thought I had to memorize this whole thing. So listening to them and answering their questions around their fears and their pain. Stay out the way. So one of the other people that I interviewed for this podcast, she's one of the best listeners I know too. Uh, her name is Dr. Juli Roca. She's actually in Genius Network too. Um, but one of the things when I asked her about how she listens so well, she says, I don't think about what I'm going to say next. Like, so is that something that you actively practice as well too? Is just, you're so in the moment, you're so focused on what they're saying or how do you do that? I have no next. I have their mm. now. Mm. If, if you're trying to help somebody, it's about them. If you're coming with a can full of questions, then you, you, you're BSing yourself and you're not really helping them. You know I'm saying there could be some standardized questions and leave all that at home. Bro, how you feeling today, B? What's good? I'm, I'm excited. Okay, why are you excited? Yeah, I'm on podcast number five. I got you on the show. Okay, cool. <laughs> it's like, whatever. But it would be such a down if I just came on tomorrow. Yeah, I just went from the mall and I, I did this. And you know, as much as you like me on your show, you still want, you still want to be in charge. Because you want to direct this. If I started directing this, it takes on a whole nother light than what you wasn't looking for. So I'm not going to try to take over your show. Don't try to take over their life or their pain. Let them have their show. Let them have their pain and walk through them with them. Walk through it with them, not for them. Wow. Absolutely incredible. Well, I know we're, you're very generous with your time, Andre. So you probably could go for forever and you've got practice with going for forever. Cause when you come in, you come in and you're always there for people. So I just wanted to kind of ask to kind of wrap things up, If people were to kind of, well, I guess before I ask that, I mean, is there anything else that you feel like we missed that you wanted to talk about that you think is really important? I mean, a lot of this was about how I see it and how I lived it and how I've been through it. My message isn't prison school. My message isn't Trumping people for hamburgers in school. My message is, it doesn't matter where you started. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter how many mistakes you made up, made after the fact that you made a choice. That with the right support and the right network and the right set of people, anything's possible. So I'm this is zero percent better. That's me. Everybody's not. Some people want ten percent odds or thirty percent odds or. Give me zero percent. I'm coming with Elon Musk, Joe Polish, and um, Steve Jobs. Put me in Richard Branson model. I'm cool being the last in that line. Then first, and I have a bunch of nobodies. Trey, mm. you're last in the right line. Yes, I am. <laughs> they always said, if you're the smartest one in the room, you're in the wrong room. So what I would say to the folks listening to this, you can. It's you can. I had million dollars idea. I had million dollar ideas when I believed it, not when other people believed it. Harvard became real when I believed it, not when other people believed it. Your success, yes, you have to do the work. It becomes real when you believe it. Then the world will catch up later. You believe it, then your then your walk will prove it to everybody else. You get to tell it to them. Just live it. Awesome. So where can people find out more about what you're doing, Andre, or anything else that you wanted to kind of share for people to follow your journey? 
Um, they can read the book. It has like a lot of these stories. Personality isn't permanent. It's a great book. I'm in there. <laughs> um, Ambassador of Hope. I'm in there. Who else's book am I in? But it's another book I'm in. I'm trying to remember. Isn't Ambassador of Hope your book? <laughs> Hope's my book. Yeah. <laughs> There's a guy, John O'Leary. Um, he has a book called, I think it's Inspire or Be Inspired. I'm in his book. Great guy. Um, Christian, solid dude. And Facebook, Instagram. I'm about to start a YouTube channel. I'm working on it. So Evan Carmichael did the most phenomenal training last week and a half ago. So he's inspired me to start a part, me um, a YouTube channel. Awesome. And really be serious about it. Cool. Well, you you belong on YouTube. You belong creating content because everybody listening to this knows how incredible of a storyteller you are. I mean, you have the practice. You've done so many incredible things. So, Andre, thank you so much. This has been incredible, and I look forward to continuing the conversation as we keep talking in the future. <laughs> All right. Well, tell you folks if they reach out, I hit them up, and um, I don't have any free T-shirts, but um, <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I I, I I I answer back to anybody who reaches out, so I appreciate you, and just. Go live. They don't, what, what, what other options you got? Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Hey, it's Brandon here again, and I have a quick favor to ask before you head off, and that is if you are listening to my voice right now and you are currently using either Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it would help me a ton if you could stop what you're doing, take five seconds to tap the number of stars that you think the show deserves. So if you're on Spotify, there's a place to add a star rating right underneath the name of the show, and if you're listening on Apple, just scroll down where you're seeing all the episodes and there's something that says tap to rate. Just tap the number of the stars that you think the show deserves. And you may not know this, but I typically spend over five hours of my own time each week just researching a guest on the show. And then there's the time that's spent recording the show, the intro, reaching out to new guests, and of course, all the editing, publishing, promoting that my amazing wife and high school sweetheart, Leah, helps me to manage. So all that to say, there's a lot that goes on just to get to the point where you listen to this episode. So if you appreciate the content and have 10, five to 10 seconds to spare, it would help a ton if you could leave a quick rating on the show. Extra credit if you choose to leave a review, but just tapping whatever stars you feel the show deserves helps a ton and it takes so little time. So whether you choose to do that or not, I so appreciate you and I'll talk with you soon.